the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Hey, welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp. We are the safe haven for exvangelicals, church burnouts, spiritual refugees, and especially those who want to explore spirituality and follow the love ethic of Jesus, but outside evangelicalism or organized religion. Today, we are very excited to have a special guest in Jim Palmer. Jim is a former mega church pastor, a humanist chaplain, a certified spiritual director. He holds a Master of Divinity, and he's the founder of the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Michael. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could come on. Um, I almost introduced you as a former mega pastor, not a mega church pastor. <laughs> that was what well, was in my notes. But Well, you um, know... As it goes in that world is that, you know, people who thrive in evangelical uh, church life can sort of take on that. They, yeah, they take on that role anyways. That's yeah, right. Yeah. This, this even if it, in a, sometimes even in a small church, they're, they consider themselves a mega pastor. OK, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, we uh, met at the Awaken conference uh, in June in Tennessee. Uh, I heard you speak and. Uh, I was very impressed with uh, your organization and uh, the what you had to say. We met briefly, and I, uh, I I knew I had to have you on my podcast. And I love the idea of non-religious spirituality, and as I think that's one of the most um, important things I learned when I deconstructed evangelicalism. That when we make the way of Jesus or any spiritual path into a religion, we inevitably screw it up. So um, uh, we want to get to know you and what your work is. And uh, I believe it's very important to get this notion of a non-religious spiritual life out there. Hmm. Um, so why don't we start with, though, getting people acquainted with your background. Uh, you were a former mega church pastor. So um, what's that story? How did you become a, a, a major leader in the evangelical movement? So after a very volatile childhood and youth, when I was a senior in high school, um, a fellow football player who was new to the team, I went to McDonald's with him one day, and he was aware of some of the volatility in my personal life with my family. My mother was alcoholic. My father left when I was very young. 
And that's kind of a whole nother story. But he convinced me that God could make a difference in my life. So at McDonald's, you know, eating a hash brown um, <laughs> and drinking a coffee, I accept Jesus into my heart as my savior. And although I was going to go to college to play football, I had injured myself, but decided to go anyway, go to college, my undergrad at Easton C State University. And like the first week of school in the student center, I run into this gentleman who happened to be the director of the Campus Crusade for Christ ministry on campus. So I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, traveled overseas, became the student body president for a couple of years. And what I learned in that experience, because going to college, I had no idea who I was, what my skills were, what I was going to do for the rest of my life and so on. But I discovered in uh, in Campus Crusade that, that there's two things that I kind of seem to naturally do well, talk and lead. So that was enough to, to, you know, get me started in leadership positions in that parachurch organization. My senior year in college, a guy rolled into town to start an evangelical free church. And I actually heard him advertise it on the radio. And I went out to their meeting in a hotel about it and uh, decided to get involved in that uh, church planting pastor had a big impact on my direction in terms of what I wanted to do going forward. I had thought about going on staff with Campus Crusade. I did major in journalism and had thought about some different things, but based on his mentoring, I decided to go to seminary. So I packed my bags, went right. to Chicago, went to Evangelical uh, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, got my MDiv there started sort of making a name for myself in the homiletics department. While I'm up there, one of my, my one of my professors says, hey, you should go check out this church in, you know, South Barrington called Willow Creek. So Willow I got Creek, the address. Right. I drove out there, drove past it 10 times because I couldn't believe like that was a church. <laughs> it was like a yeah, university. That must be the industrial area or something. That I know. When, when, um, when I stopped and asked, and they, you know, we're talking about, well, what part of the campus are you trying to get to? I'm just like, okay, we're not in Kansas anymore. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. so... I go to Willow Creek Church because the the um, my professor said that they were looking to bring somebody first in as intern. So I went, you know, and talked to them about it. They hired me first as an intern. After I completed my internship, then they added me to their pastoral staff team. And so I served at Willow Creek um, as a pastor and eventually um, was one of a few people who took on the challenge. Well, so at Willow Creek, of course, those were the days when Willow Creek was the largest church in North America. Oh, right. It was like people took their pilgrimage up to Willow Creek to find out all the secrets to right, you know, a bit to, right to church growth movement. People right. going up there checking it out. That's Bill Hybels. That was he was the right. Pastor, yes, right? Yeah. yes. Um, yeah. who, who you know I know very well. Um, and you know they've had their own challenges, uh, you know, over the yep. years and so on. Um. And so I was one of the few people that they asked to go to other parts of the country to start a non-denominational non seeker-oriented Willow Creek-style church, which I did in Nashville. Um, one of the sort of things I tell people that are kind of funny, that apparently on a slow business day, the front, you know, the, the, the headline story in the Tennessean 
was the start of like this, the, you, you know, that the North was sending in their people, you know, to the, uh, uh, the Bible bell to, you know, bring in their heretical, uh. you know, contemporary <laughs> work. And on top of that, Michael Jordan's picture was on the front page because there was something going on with him at the time. So oh, I tell okay. people all the time that I had the good fortune of being on the, the front page of the okay. paper with, my, with, with Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> Who I did become, well, you know, and I totally became a huge Chicago Bulls fan. I was there during the championship years. Oh, very Jordan. cool. All right. I would lose sleep when they lost games and things like that. So even to this day, there's not a week that goes by that I probably don't watch on TikTok or Instagram an old, um, you know, Michael Jordan right. uh, reel. So, um, yeah. so here I am, Pastor Springberg Community Church. It's like the whole phenom because of the timing and where it was from and all this kind of stuff. So that church goes gangbusters. And that only like adds to the mystique of, you know, showing people how to grow a church from zero to this and all that. And but then one day there were a few things that started happening. Um, and let me just choose one of them. One of them was one day I had the realization that despite my bulletproof, upstanding, good evangelical seminary taught theology. Despite all that, I started noticing in our congregation that people's fundamental challenges and hardships and frustrations persisted. Like, I wouldn't have said this, but I more or less believed as long as you're giving people good theology, that theology should result in life transformation. Right. But yeah. I stepped back and I realized that's not really the case. You know, broken relationships persisted. Anxiety and depression persisted. People's struggles internally and hardships persisted. And I began to observe this, which led up to a moment of self-honesty when I realized, you know what? This is also true of me. Wow. Like wow. I'm I'm running around trying to uh you know run and manage and grow this church and I'm stressed, I'm struggling, I'm not happy. I can't say that I really have peace. So I, I discovered that this was true within myself, and it was that realization. Well, and you know, um you could also throw in there that, that there were some aspects of my Christian theology that I was becoming a little bit like um, I was struggling with. You know, um, I, I was beginning to see some inconsistency with my seminary approved theological education. And right. but that led to my deciding, OK. I. Something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And. I need to figure out what is wrong. Something's right, wrong, right. like the whole thing, including myself. So I resigned my position. As now, how long had you been pastor? Of, this was in the Tennessee church, right? Yeah, at that church. So how, how long had you been a pastor altogether from Willow Creek in Tennessee? Um, how long a period of time was this? It would have been, what, uh, 90 
four, five to 2005. Yeah. About 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So I walked away from it. You know, I, I resigned and so it had a cost, right? Like um, I left my church community. I left my vocation and ministerial career. I left my Christian theological belief system. I left my social network of people. Um, I left my identity, which revolved around being a Christian, being a pastor, being a celebrity, being someone that everybody looked to every week to be an authority on what to think and believe about God. And I, I walked away from all of that to figure out what went wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You had to step back and reassess everything. That makes sense. I mean, is it is it fair to say that that church and your church experiences, it was like, you know, you're saying something like, hey, th this isn't meeting the needs of people, really. But what's drawing them in? Is it safe to say it was so very superficial? People came in. There's a contemporary music. There's people are excited. This is not like your normal church. There's a lot of people there. There must be something going on. This must be good. But underneath, it wasn't really working out. Is that is it fair to say that? I think it would be fair to say that there was a novelty, at least at Springbrook Community Church, I think maybe even at Willow Creek, that th there was a novelty and there was an entertainment value to what we were doing. And there was a self-help kind of um, overlay to it that I think, was appealing to people. And like, even at Willow Creek, that's why eventually we really got into some discussions about the need to develop, you know, like the community group or small group system, because like at some point we became aware that it wasn't enough for people to come in for the, uh, the, the Sunday morning seeker service, uh, like, that alone really wasn't going deep enough into people's lives to address, uh, you know, to fundamentally face and address the things that may be the cause of their own inner suffering and so on. Right, right. So you had you didn't have a small group uh, structure at that time. We did, but oh, you did. Uh, you mean at Willow Creek? Yeah, Willow Creek. Yeah, yeah. Not at the not at the time, really. Yeah, so while right. I was there, it, they kind of really developed and pushed and and put a lot of energy and resources into um developing i can't remember what we called it back then what was it the miniature you know like something to do yeah with, there are all know. these terms and in, in my experience it, uh, the vineyard called it kinship groups uh we call yeah. them home groups in some churches uh yeah there are different names for them um uh but yeah that's very common um and you know that one of the things that they do is set up a home group or, or a smaller group's uh, system. And depending on how they operate, at least in my experience, uh, a lot of times the home group system was just trying to reinforce whatever the pastor was, was preaching. And, and so there wasn't really very much autonomy, like, oh, you can, you know, choose any subject you want <laughs> that meets the needs of your folks. No, you have to follow along with, with the program. Right. The, the approved you right. know, studies. I think the other thing too is that one thing that I discovered and and I've 
to my own personal experience and talking with other people that there are like systemic um, problems in organized church that works against true and deep life transformation, even if it all breaks down into a small group. And one of those, for example, would be a lack of authenticity or lack of vulnerability, because we all learn in one way or another that, you know, we're, we're supposed to know God, and that means that we're supposed to be blessed, and that means that we're supposed to have our life more or less worked out. And, that you know, the church is not a very safe place for me to go in and share my mental health struggles, my right. problems with depression. Yeah. Yes, that, you know, yeah, my marriage true. is like yeah, falling apart. Right. And, and if, depending on what kind of church it is, I was in charismatic in the charismatic movement. Well, that one. Oh, yeah. Well, let's pray. You know, <laughs> right. let's get you baptized in the spirit. Pray. You know, if we find any demons, we'll exercise the demons. And that right. was that was the solution. Yeah. And then, usually, usually they do it once or twice. And if you keep coming back and saying, I'm having still having this problem, they go, well, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Right. That's I think that that's really it's unfortunate that. And, you know, I think that we know that, that we can have a great appreciation for the spiritual wisdom and truth that could be found in all kinds of sacred texts and traditions, including the Bible, and yet not hold the idea that you can Bible verse or prayer group your way out of every problem. And right. sometimes it's just unfortunate that a lot of um, you know, uh, faith communities that they they don't uh, promote or encourage or validate all kind. You know, the the spectrum of mental health services that might be necessary right. to really Absolutely. help a person. And, and it's it's unfortunate in so many ways because yeah. even people like Carl Jung, who was yeah. an analytical psychologist, of course, he you know saw. Um, kind of from the perspective of the philosophy of religion, he even saw in Jesus an archetypal figure who represented something that held weight regardless of what your Christian or right. what your religious tradition was. And of course, that is the idea of the philosophy of religion in general, is that, that there are those archetypal figures and stories and narratives that have universal human significance regardless of your faith tradition, including if you're an atheist. But it's just, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, and I tell people all the time, like I I, I have a, a thing I wrote not too long ago, like here's the 50 mistakes that I made as a pastor. And one of them oh, yeah, was, right. you know, putting, uh, you know, uh, theology over psychology yes. or, you yeah. know, not, cr not creating a space for a conversation about mental health and mental health services you know, yeah, that no, that's definitely true. I mean, my my experience was, hey, you know, they were very uh, suspicious of secular psychologists, uh, therapists. No, we'll 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 deal with this in the church. You know, everything had to be dealt with in the church, and you didn't. They didn't trust uh, the outside <laughs> secular professions at all, uh, with some rare exceptions, um, but. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And and uh, that was my experience. And then if you do go to a counselor, you have to go to a Christ Christian one. Right. Usually, sometimes they would say you have to go to someone in our church. <laughs> and right. Then, and then it was at least at least a Christian counselor. If you went to a, one that wasn't a Christian, I mean, that was just the worst thing in the world. Well, and in fact, I had a friend who was a pastor whose daughter 
went to see a psychologist for an eating disorder and he was practically run out of the church for having yeah. done that, you know. <laughs> right. But I think you know, the, the other one the ahead. other no, well, the other unfortunate thing with the respect of what you're saying there is that I think that sometimes church culture um it, it definitely limits a person's exploration of branches of knowledge and areas of inquiry that are pivotal for human and spiritual development. And that's talking about non-religious spirituality earlier. One of the ways that I describe this is that it's an exploratory spirituality, which means, you know, um, philosophy, psychology, the natural sciences, physics, history, anthropology, and all kinds of other fields of inquiry are all relevant and significant for, you know, healthy human and spiritual development. Right. No, and it's absolutely true. And, 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 and there, the worldview, it's really a worldview that, you know, us versus them, anything outside of us is not good. And, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and they, so total distrust and, and their view of God is so small that God can't really work outside of their you know, their denomination or their <laughs> movement or whatever. But I, just a just a little uh, example that, that hits this home for me was I, I was clinically depressed when I went through my faith crisis and in, in, in initial deconstruction. And what saved me, even though I went to some Christian counselors, what really saved me was was cognitive behavioral therapy, which was completely secular. Right. And I picked up a book called Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns. And that book and the ideas in that book saved me and got me out of depression. Yeah. Nothing to do with, you know, the church or Christianity or Jesus. I mean, you could you could argue that there were ideas in there that kind of matched, you know, the love of Christ and compassion and set your mind on positive things and so forth. But it, you know, it was completely secular. Right. So this is just it's just amazing to me that people don't realize how important wherever the ideas if the ideas are good and they work, then they're good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so let me pivot a little bit. But, you yeah. know, you talked a little bit about, you know, what made you, you know, start questioning things and leave. What was that like? Um how traumatic was that for you and the people that were close to you? You, you, you had a family, wife and, and kids. And, you know, how did and, and then finally, how did you, you know, finally kind of come to a, some stability and peace after that experience? Yeah. Um, so it, it was traumatic. There's there's no um, it, it was a traumatic experience, which, you know, it, it, it kind of became a bit of a foundation from which to speak to other people from my experience, you know, um, because when you, when you leave religion and, um, you know, there's all sorts of things, there's existential crisis, there's identity crisis, there's usually relation social network crisis, you know, like, um, and there are ways that one can work through that, but, you know, it, it, uh, it, it still doesn't protect you from all the difficulties and hardships. Like, for example, you know, um, we we could think of a case where there's an atheist and let's say someone who's Jewish who were married and it works. You know, like there are people from different faith traditions who have 
are, are married or have domestic partnerships and it works out and it's mm-hmm. fine, you know? Right. Um, but it's also the case that if someone signs up for a person as a Christian and that person is no longer Christian, it's like, well, that's not what I signed up for. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and right. so you have to deal with that, whether it's family members, whether it's a spouse, whether it's your friends, whatever, you know, it, it happens to be. And so when I left religion, well, when I left, departed from, from my ministerial career, my um, belief system and so on, one of the things that I just started doing by happenstance is blogging about it. So I started a blog, started mm-hmm. writing about my experience, mm-hmm. um, what I was feeling, what I was experiencing. And a uh, an individual who worked for a publishing house read it and contacted me and said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book about your experience that you're sharing? And at the time, Donald Miller had published Blue Like Jazz. Right. I remember reading that one. Yep. Okay. That was one of the first <laughs> deconstruction right. books, right? <laughs> right. And but I think if I'm not mistaken, Don Miller wrote this as a single person in college. And so what kind of what um I was what what someone said to me was there there probably need, there's space here for a book for someone to write that other people can relate to if they're not like a college student. And because at that time there weren't a lot of deconstruction books that were like even being no, read. There weren't, you know? no, no. So um so I wasn't looking to get published, but on the basis of those conversations, um, I signed a two book a two-book deal, and the first one was Divine Nobodies, and Divine Nobodies right. was right. like my um uh, my my beginning to question and deconstruct and discover reality outside of my religiously trained way of thinking about the world and God and myself and others and the whole thing. So mm-hmm. I wrote Divine Nobodies and then like I get um totally slammed by emails by people saying, Jim, I know exactly what you're saying. This is exactly what I feel. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Wow. Please, like yeah. with you yeah. uh, from right. pastors, from people right. who were in church and so on and so forth. So then I discovered, okay, like I did see pretty quickly that what can happen is it's normal for a person who leaves religion to feel betrayed, angry, um, disheartened, disillusioned, and so on. But you don't want to get stuck there indefinitely. No. Right. Yeah. And so I started realizing that right. now, again, it's normal. Like you, 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 it's even necessary to feel all that that I just said. It's just that. It's a part of the process. You don't want to like, you know, set up camp in there forever. So then I realized, okay, I need to start figuring out what this looks like. You know, I can't sit around and just argue with what I didn't like about religion. It's time to figure out what it is. What am I for? What does spirituality look like for me now? You know, who is God beyond my understandings from religion? So that I wrote Wide Open Spaces. That was the book where I began to share my first steps. This is what it looks like for me. This is what prayer looks like for me. This is what the Bible looks like for me. This is what yes. Jesus You're starting to rebuild something, right? Yes. Now, the thing yeah. is, though, is even after I wrote that book, 
I was a little not happy with what I came up with about Jesus. Like it just seemed like that I wasn't satisfied with, Mm -hmm. with that. And so my next two book deal included writing a book where I go out into the world under the premise that I could do anything Jesus can do because we're both basically human and divine the same way. In other words, mm-hmm. that Jesus is not divine in a way that I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I could go into the world theoretically and do everything Jesus did. And I was going to put this to the test for a year. Oh, okay. Now, the excitement about this was like, this is going to be awesome because we can see Jim, like this is going to be a book that's being written at he's, as he does it. And of course, he's going to discover that the whole thing's absurd. There's no way that he can be divine the way Jesus was. And we'll all see this. And Jesus and Jim will come up with something kind of profound to say about Jesus in the end. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. what happened is that um, that's not quite what happened. And what happened led to my publishing house accusing me of being heretical and outside the, the, like me and Rob Bell were both, you know, uh, we kind of had this parallel journey and both of us were told by our publisher, we can no longer publish your books because you're outside the lines of Orthodox biblical theology. So they they canceled that book. They canceled my book trial, you know, my book. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lifeway wouldn't, they wouldn't carry any of my books anymore. And like all that happened. Right. So that was, that's so common. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The non-negotiables, the lanes are pretty narrow. And once you get out the outside those lanes, (laughs) that lane, they, they put the they put the stoppers on, right? Yeah, yeah. So, that's that happens. So then eventually, I did write notes from over the edge, and then my last book is Inner Anarchy, and there is one book I never published called How to Have a Great Day Without Religion. But while this is going on, more and more people I get in contact with them. They're wanting to talk to me, um, and so you know, like me, you know, so twenty five years of dealing with people who leave religion there begins to be some patterns to what happens. There's some emerging themes. There's, you know, in, at, at, in time you begin to develop a way of thinking about it that can help and support people's process out of um, religion. And then I started discovering that at the time, therapists are not too prone to talk about religion or God in therapy appointments because it's kind of like, look, that, you know, yes, um, that's right. what... So, yeah, they yeah they don't know how to deal with the religion realm. Yes. Know. So then I started going around the country. Well, it started in Tennessee. Began to meet with professional therapist associations to talk about this, which eventually was kind of named as a as a as a mental health distinction, religious trauma syndrome (RTS). Okay, right, right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. religious trauma syndrome is sort of the mental health clinical term that's used to identify the condition where a person has been traumatized through their involvement mm-hmm. in religion. And there's really a range here, right? Like on one end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, like the Jim Jones cult or David Koresh, right? Right, right. Or even LDS or even Hasidic Jews in some cases, it can be a right. very oppressive, you right. know, religious experience. And then on the other end of the continuum, you have the contemporary, family-friendly, young, good-looking, charismatic pastor churches that seem harmless, but 
They're still <laughs> peddling the same toxic religion. They're, they're still peddling the same toxic beliefs that are absolutely psychologically harmful. Which yeah, and that I, makes it almost more insidious because they, on the outside, they seem so nice and clean and <laughs> right. So, yeah. I mean, I know even when I was a pastor, and again, I've admitted, you know, I've got that. Here's 50 things that I should have done that would have been way better. But even when I was a pastor, you know, like I didn't really ever preach about hell. Um, yeah, right, know, right. And and even though I, I kind of was you, supposed to believe you in were it. Supposed to, and you you probably believed it, but yeah, but you know, I, I kind of was like that too. You kind of avoid it. But when the rubber meets the road, yeah, I gotta sign the statement of faith that I believe in it and you have to tell people every once in a while, remind them, yeah, there is a hell. So, <laughs> right. And then, so then I'm kind of was, um, okay, what do we do with Jesus here? Because I've basically deconstructed and walked away from the entire theological edifice on which Jesus sat, you yes. know, uh, Orthodox Christian theology, you know, there's the original sin and the fall of humankind and this, you know, separated people from God. And therefore, Jesus was God's only son who needed to die to be the sacrifice to atone for all of this so that humankind and God could be reunited and that separation could be ended. And it could all end in, in heaven after death or hell if you didn't have the correct theology or beliefs in order to make that whole thing work. And so... Um, but then, you know, like when you're going through deconstruction, you start poking around at things like you start realizing that there's not really one word in any, you know, church creed that even has anything to say about Jesus. And then you kind of learn about all the church councils and actually how how the, the primary, you know, um, theological foundation got constructed. And then you realize that actually... You know, we shouldn't even call it Christianity as if Jesus Christ is the center of it. It's like, you know, Christianity was, uh, you know, basically one could say that Paul is the most responsible for what ended up becoming what we now call Christianity. And I don't think that Jesus, not only would he not understand probably half of Paul's theology, not because Jesus was dumb, but because I don't think it would make any sense. And I don't think that he would support that theology. And I think if Jesus came back today, he certainly wouldn't be a Christian. He wouldn't sign up to Orthodox Christian theology. Yeah, and right. he'd probably get crucified all over again. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's so, so true. That's one of the things that I that I love to talk about is, uh, you know, how, how to disentangle Jesus uh, from religion and Christianity. And when my, in my deconstruction, uh, when I learned some of the historical facts about, you know, all kinds of different things, how the Bible was compiled, how Jesus actually viewed the Bible, uh, you know, what, you know, what is the focus of his main message and what was the historical context and cultural context of his message, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You come out with a whole different paradigm that is totally outside of the paradigm of evangelicalism. It's just, it's just amazing. So, you know, what, what, what about you? How, how have you, how have you disentangled, let's say, I know you've talked about this in a recent podcast. So, <laughs> so how have you disentangled Jesus from from religion or Christianity? 
Well, I think there's several pieces of it. For example, how one views the Bible. Okay. Yes. Um, most, so a lot of religious people interpret the Bible literally. And of course, if you're in that tradition, you just kind of assume that this is the way everyone's interpreted the Bible. It's the right way to interpret the Bible. And like, is there any other way to interpret the Bible? And then you discover that actually there is a whole history of right. thinking about what the Bible is. And only one of them is a literalist view of the Bible. And that's in my mind, the least defensible view. And that this is not a little thing, but even in the earliest, um, history of the church, including the disciples themselves at the very beginning, had a whole spectrum of different beliefs about not just little things like should we dunk or sprinkle, but things about like the divinity of Jesus and so on. So um, that's really a watershed thing, right? Like if you believe that God actually created Adam and Eve and that there was a piece of fruit that Eve ate and that it caused original sin and that this was a, this, you know, was the literal story that occurred and then that's going to take you down a certain path from which you're going to understand the entirety of everything, including Jesus, why he died on the cross and so on. Um, and so there's, there's kind of, you know, that's a, a, a pretty big piece of it. You know um, how one should take the Bible. It's not just whether or not you should interpret it. Like let's say metaphorically, like you first have to convince yourself that the writers even intended for you to take it literally. Like, look, I see people all the time, like hating on the Bible because like, you know, yeah, like Noah really had an ark, but I don't know if what's the real crazy thing here that it may not be that they thought that happened as a historical literal thing. It might be that like, you know, we actually believe that the writer of the story intended us to be taking it, taking it that way, which means it's on us. Right. You know, like we're the ones who, you know, have, you, you know, uh, come up with that. So that was certainly a, a, uh, a piece of it. Then, you know, okay. And I'm going to say this pretty decisively, but I don't mean to be saying it in a way like I think that, you know, Jim's way is the only way. Okay. But right. for the sake of time, I guess. Yeah. There's no separation from God. There's absolutely none because almost from every single field of inquiry into the nature of reality, the universe and so on, Western religion, particularly Western mysticism, Eastern spirituality, you know, philosophy, physics, whatever, there's only one thing. And people often use God, the word God, to identify that. There, there is no separation from God. Everything that exists is an expression or manifestation of the thing that some people use the word God to identify. Look, if it was possible for a person to be separate from God or separated from God or people to be sent to hell to be separated from God, if anything could be separate from God, that thing would be God. Because how could you explain something being able to generate self-existence on its own apart from God? So there's right. not separation from God, which means Jesus did not die on the cross to somehow bridge some chasm or solve some separation from God. In fact, I would say 
that the whole purpose of Jesus, the meaning of the significance of Jesus was the message that there is no separation from God. So that when Jesus claimed that he was divine and human, that was the point that Jesus was trying to make, That, um, which is why Jung saw Jesus as an archetypal figure of self-actualization because Jesus' humanity, and Jesus even said, I'm not in this world, I'm, I'm in this world, but not of this world, trying to sort of point out that that ground of being, which you could use the word God to describe that, uh, that nature of reality, that essence, that ground of being, that ultimate reality, we are taking on the form of a mind body and having a lived human experience. Those things are wed together right now as human beings. And, right. you know, look, I don't know, maybe there are 50 universes. Maybe there's like 200 planets and maybe there's one called Mars. And if I was a Martian, I'd have to figure out what it meant. to What, what does it mean to be God and Martian? But I'm not. I'm a human. So the, the real, you know, the, the crux of it is bringing to bear into the universe what I am fundamentally through the mind, body, and lived human experience. And so I began to realize that this was the real meaning for Jesus. And basically the church missed it and made Jesus mostly divine and kind of human and special and different than everybody else, rather than seeing that, that Jesus was trying to say that the message, when Jesus said, I am the truth, Jesus was not saying, I know the truth or I have the truth. I am the truth. The truth is in the very nature of my being, meaning God and human. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, so um, that the, yes, a lot of the things that you're saying, one of the things that came up in my mind was when I studied history, I discovered uh, the Eastern Church and... And today, that's reflected in in uh, some Eastern streams of of Christianity, like Eastern Orthodox. They don't believe the same way as the Western Church at all. They believe very close to what you were saying yeah. about you know we're not separated, we're not totally depraved. We're you know we 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 might we might need to mature spiritually, yes, but you know we can find God on our own. You know we can. Uh, we're still in the image of God. It's not destroyed, right? It's those kinds of notions. And so it just kind of boggles my mind when I discovered that, that, that the way that we're taught in Western Christianity, Catholicism as well as evangel evangelicalism, and, and maybe a lot of liberal Christianity, I don't know, I, uh, but it's, it's not the way the Eastern Church viewed it. And what you just described is much closer to the Eastern view. Well, and, and, and also, like, even the more I began to deconstruct it, like, I came to the realization that Jesus did not believe in God. Now, let me qualify that by saying that here, there's at least 10 things that Jesus and atheists have in common. Straight up, no problem. Yeah, right. Um, and um, which is why it's unfortunate, but you know, just kind of as a side, one doesn't have to be a Christian to appreciate the significance 
of Jesus. Look, it doesn't matter whether you think Jesus was a historical person. It doesn't mean if he never existed. What we have is sort of a legend or myth of Jesus. Whichever way you come to with that, the truth is, is that Jesus is universally significant and relevant regardless of what you believe in God, including not having any belief in God at all. But I did occur to me that Jesus never held a belief in the God of religion or the God we typically see um, described even in evangelical religion. Like, okay, Jesus referred to God as father. Right. Right. Okay. Like for real, we're supposed to, we're supposed to believe that Jesus actually thought that God was a male sky God Gandalf deity sitting on some chair in a place called heaven. No, I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think that Jesus thought that. Mm -mm, I don't either. No. I think what it is, is that look, you know, we're both um, blessed and cursed through the use of language, you know, like our homo sapiens created language as the social technology to propagate our species forward. Even Darwin said, it's not the survival of the fittest that, that really saved our species. It was our ability to cooperate with one another. Language was at the center of that. Right, but right, right. Mm -hmm. The great gift of postmodernism was that we realized that actually that's a language isn't as objective as you think. There's nothing that any word corresponds to really objectively. Like I, chair is a word that we all agree that we can use as a symbol to roughly approximate the thing you sit in, but there actually isn't an objective thing called the chair in the universe, right? right we could right. deconstruct this chair, it'd be a bunch of, you know, it's wood and then it's particles and then it's atoms and then it's subatomic, you know, okay. It's, so the more abstract the notion gets, the more complicated it becomes, right? Like words like love or God, you know, like these are tough words to think about. It's not as easy as chair and language is even less reliable when talking about these things. So it makes complete sense that Jesus would have referred to God as father because it would make sense in, in that culture of what it meant to have a father, a loving and right. protecting father. Right. What I think Jesus was saying is that God can be, God doesn't have to be a person to be personal. And I think what Jesus in essence was saying that, yes. yeah. I think what Jesus was saying is that my, the way I experience ultimate reality, the way I experience that infinite, timeless, eternal ground of being, you know, I experience it with something that I would use the word love to mm -hmm. describe and would even go so far as identifying something like a father in that tradition mm -hmm. at the time to right. identify it. Right. So no, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't. So and the reason why that's relevant is that like, you know, I had a question with an atheist. Do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. OK, do you believe in love? He's like, well, OK, come on, Jim, be serious. Of course, I believe in love. We all know that love is good. Giving love is good. It feels good to receive love. It feels good to love my children. Everyone instinctually knows that that love would make the world better. And in every single case, it doesn't matter what belief system you're a part of, philosophy or religion, love right. is considered the preeminent expression, you know. Right. And so then 
the next question is, okay, you don't believe in God, but you believe in love. But what if I told you that God is love? Because that is one of the couple places in the Bible where God's real, like, defined. Right. God is spirit. God is love. Would you believe in God if I told you that God is love, which means that love is God? And, of course, the answer has to be yes, because he just told me that he believed in love. Right, right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that religion divides people along the lines of this conception about God having the correct perception and who his prophet was and who God is and so on. But it's so unfortunate because I think that whatever, however you come to it, whatever is the language that you utilize, including the language of physics or the language of philosophy, like monism to Spinoza mm -hmm. was the idea that there's only one thing and everything else is a manifestation of that. It just feels like, Michael, that we're all talking about the same thing. Right, right. Yeah, you know, um, uh, w one of the things that um, I think it's really important to reinforce is, uh, you know, people have fear of deconstruction. Oh, I have, a, I'm, you know, because they're afraid, oh, I'm going to become an atheist, like, or I'm going to stop believing in God, like Jim Palmer or Tony, I mean, uh, Bart Campolo or something. Yeah. Right. I, I call that Barto, Bartophobia, by the way, fear of becoming Bart, either Bart <laughs> yeah. Ehrman or Bart uh, Campolo. But, um, you know, I, 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 I still believe in God, but I think I can have a conversation with you about spirituality and not get all get my panties all, you know, twitched up because <laughs> you just said, I don't believe in God. This is, yeah, this is uh, really, this is one of the things that, you know, people are trying to pin people down and you've got to believe exactly the right thing and everything. Man, this is a mystery, okay? And we're trying to work it out. And right. if, you, if, you're, if you're a person who believes in love, like you just voiced, I don't care what you, you know, what you believe about theism or whatever. I care about how you treat other people in the world. Right. So, uh, but I, I just want to make that point, but yeah. But, well, yeah. And, and, and that's that people just can't, that they just can't get their head around that because you know, Oh, well, heck, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't believe in God. Well, you don't believe in this and all this kind of thing, but there can be, there can be very, there can be non, uh, non theists that are more loving, than theists. So, you know, end of argument, really. <laughs> right. And, and there are people that ask me all the time, Jim, do you believe in God? And my follow-up question is, well, first you need to tell me what God are we talking about? Okay. Are we talking yeah. about, are we talking exactly. about the God who right. created the world in a few days, who right. created Adam and Eve with the ability to have free will to choose something and they used it and, you know, like spoiler alert, they used it and managed to, uh, you know, mess everything up for all human civilization civilization for all time. And then that happened. And then um, God, to rectify this, his hands were tied. The only thing he could do to fix this was to have his own son be a blood sacrifice and that this was the solution. It's not completely the solution because you do need to understand at some point to be able to make the choice. And in the end, all you know what happens is about three quarters of all of our species ends up going to eternal conscious torment. No, no, no. We, wait, wait. Yeah, right? no, if we, it's that we guy, don't believe in that God. No, right, no not that not God. At all. Yeah. So I think that um, it's the uh, because so there's 
so many ways to think about. And again, God is a word that we use to roughly identify something on the level of ultimate reality. On the spectrum, theism is only one way of thinking about God. And it's true. I think it's probably the least defensible one, depending on how you take it. But it doesn't mean if you're not a theist that you don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I mean, now. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I mean, um, it, it, it all boils down to we don't we don't really know how to define God. And what we can we can definitely say, I don't believe in that type of God. I don't believe in that type of God. And, uh, you know, there's something else out there, but I'm not sure if I should call it God, you know, whatever. But, right. Um, and 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 you know what you just described oh like we don't believe in that god that wasn't the way in my estimation from studying history that wasn't that wasn't what the god jesus believed in that wasn't the god that the earliest students of jesus believed in the eastern church didn't believe that way and they still don't so i mean i mean mo i mean you know there are some uh universalists among eastern uh christians but not all of them but still there it, it's there's another christian you i i hate we using the word christian but there's another jesus uh follower stream that does not believe in that god is the point i'm trying to make so we, we're running out of time but i want to get into um your work in the center for non-religious spirituality you know what what needs are you addressing there you know, are, are these ex-evangelicals, uh, uh, you know, former people in conservative Christianity coming there? And, and what are they learning and what, what are you offering people? Yeah, so um, non-religious spirituality, and I did talk about this in one podcast, it's not anti-religious spirituality, right? Like, okay. you know, I don't pretend that my experience or any person's singular experience of religion is representative of every person's experience of religion of all time, everywhere mm. in the world. So it's not anti-religious, but what I mean by non-religious is um, would be a few things. One is non-religious in that it's an exploratory, exploratory spirituality that um, is that wants to seek beyond the traditional religious slash theological um, belief systems that it's non-religious in that sense and non-religious also in the sense that it doesn't necessitate a connection to a um to church as a place with classes and meetings and structures and so on that it's okay to explore spirituality in terms other than a more right. institutional organized uh church sure. kind of setting and so you know, like we've all heard of the knowns, right? That, you know, when you yep. when you go to a, you, the last one is that uh, you, you don't affiliate with any church, you know, like mm -hmm. none of the above. We know the SBNR, spiritual but not religious category, people that are very spiritual, but they, they are looking beyond traditional religious thinking uh, in, in order to explore that spirituality. So the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality, I founded in 2021 to be a space where people can come wherever they're at in their not, you know, their post-religion spirituality, where they know right. that it will be a place where they will be accepted, they will not be judged, they can have conversations and connections that are authentic and real with other people who are going through, you know, a similar uh, process. And 
So not everybody who's interested in non-religious spirituality necessarily has to be someone who left religion and deconstructing. But as it turns okay. out, a lot yeah. of people that do come to the Center for Non-Religious right. Spirituality. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, over time, uh, so there's a network of resources that people can utilize. Like, you know, there's a 30-day detox guide. There's spiritual directors that deal with deconstruction specifically. I have a training program that actually trains people and certifies people in non-religious spiritual direction. Um, uh, the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality is LLC. And so, you know, there's a community and courses and, you know, connections and resources and that allows people to get what they need to help them in, you know, cultivating their uh, more authentic, more human, more liberating spirituality for them. And I think the non-religious spirituality sort of designation is useful only because we all know what it's like when we're trying to talk to someone and then a troll comes in and like blows everything up. <laughs> so, you know, so it's kind of like letting people know on the front end that, you know, if you're an evangelical, you know, um, solid evangelical, inerrant word of God, three quarters of the world is going to be an eternal conscious torment kind of person. You probably are not going to, you know. No, yeah, you're not. It's not a good fit for you. <laughs> so um, I get it. So what would be a, uh, a typical course or, you know, that you offer content that you offer? Well, one example would be, um, well, let me give an example of something I, I'm doing upcoming. So I'm doing two 16 week group spiritual direction slash coaching because people don't even might even know what spiritual direction is, but the word coaching somehow lands with people, even though spiritual direction is different from coaching, but still one for a group that's doing deconstruction and a different group for people who are doing reconstruction, not to imply oh, okay. that those Good. are not that they're yeah. totally separate, but still. yeah, they can overlap. Definitely, for sure, they overlap. Yeah. But I, that's helpful for some people. Go, okay, I want to choose one of those, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like in general, I say, and of course, this doesn't work perfectly. But if you're like under two years of leaving religion, do the deconstruction one. If you're yeah. over two years, but that doesn't even fit perfectly. But it doesn't fit fit perfectly. Yeah. But it's a good it's a good idea to to separate them. I think that's great. Yeah. So I do have like. Um, there's a life after religion course. There's a life after religion detox guide that, and here's the thing I learned about deconstruction. So you can leave church. You can even jettison a whole bunch of your Christian theology. And, you know, you could be really pissed at church. You can do all those things, but that's still, Michael, that's not, you know, addressing the, the, um, the deepest work that really has to be done with people who have left religion to truly address the religious pathology to disentangle themselves from toxic religion, religious doctrine, and to do that work or trauma in some cases in terms of spiritual abuse and mental abuse or other kinds of it. Like it requires some deep dive work to really get past it and be a healthy person going forward. You know, a lot of people, yeah, all they right. do is they're like 100% in on religion and then they leave and they're 100% against religion. And all they're doing is switching sides. And the reference point is still religion. It's just once they were yeah. for it and now that they're right. against it. 
right yeah yeah so it's finding a a way forward and healing from some of the trauma so you're not always <laughs> harping on it but but i mean it, it's it's important to to talk about it because we're trying to you know prevent other people from being harmed we're trying to say hey you know this is a bad thing you should you know rethink this and i mean uh, I, that's one of the things that I like is that just like just recently, a person that I was, uh, I went to, I was in intervarsity Christian fellowship, not campus crusade <laughs> in college. I almost did, but they did have one. It, well, yeah. Well, so anyways, I, 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 the campus crusade was a little bit too conservative for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I did the university thing and there was this woman that I was really fr good friends with in intervarsity Christian fellowship. And she read my recent book, just recently, just yesterday, she posted a review on Amazon and she's like, I really read this with trepidation. And that's what happens when you're, you, you fear having an open mind. But this is a really good book and I really recommend it. So so it's like, yeah, the, the, I, what I'm saying is that people uh, need to um, uh, come come to some kind of a resolution and and not just always be, uh, you know, focusing on net on the negative i mean although we do have to expose it we have to kind of get past it as well yeah so, and and just yeah, something that i want to say about and i know we're like at the end here but i am so appreciative of you and in my mind one of the reasons why you and the book you just wrote are so significant is that what i learned in time is that so many people are done with religion even some religious theology, but I'm amazed at how Jesus has persisted in people's interest. Like whatever you think about Jesus, he's been a figure of interest for like a couple thousand years that hasn't waned. And one of the things I appreciate about you is you giving people space to appreciate the significance of Jesus without holding on to their religion and right. and and even other aspects of their even to continue to be a christian on different terms and so like you know the there's the phrase you throw out the baby with the bath water and that's the right. easy thing to do but i am so grateful for your thoughts you know your writing and the way you offered that to people like it's it, it's so valuable i mean i hope everybody reads that book well, thank people, you i don't yeah, I appreciate people contact you because i think that it's um it's a epic contribution i think to spirituality in our world to have you know you holding space for people to be able to investigate it um on on different terms no absolutely i mean yeah i really appreciate you saying all that that's great um that's kind of what i wanted to do with the book um you know we as you reconstruct let's get our facts straight let's get some you know history right let's get some perspective as we when we we choose to rebuild and if we choose to rebuild let's have all this information in front of us before we go forward otherwise you know we're missing something. That's the way I look at it. So yeah. um, anyways, uh, this has been great. We're running out. of. We ran out of time. Thank you so much, Jim, for being on the podcast. Uh, and uh, uh, 
folks, where can folks go to find the the center and get all these courses and so forth? They could they could just go to nonreligiousspirituality.com. Okay, nonreligiousspirituality.com. Great. Check it out, folks. Uh Jim Palmer. Um folks, uh we'll um see you on the next podcast which I think is going to be, I don't know, maybe uh, Tom Thomas J. Ord. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's a choir published, uh, author as well. But anyways, so he'll be on the podcast next. And uh, Jim, again, uh, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate your work and thanks, uh, for sharing with us today. Folks, uh, until next time, enjoy responsibly. <laughs>